Genesis 47. I don't know if this side can see the board. Y'all are a little further back tonight. So. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to move forward, though, but if you need me to write bigger, I can do that. So Genesis 47, we're back in Genesis after a short visit to Romans last Wednesday. And you'll remember when we left off with Genesis, what had happened? Anybody want to fill us in? Last place we left off in Genesis? Don't say 46. Don't. Uh, okay. <laughs> it was Joseph, and that's why we stopped paying him. So. <laughs> Genesis 47. You'll remember what happened is that Jacob and his family finally made it to Egypt, and they settled in the land of Goshen. And we said Goshen was like a version of Eden right there in Egypt. It was this beautiful, luscious, green place, and it looked like it was Eden. And it seemed like these were all of God's promises coming to pass. It seemed like everything was going good, that this was the restoration, even though we know that it wasn't. In fact, it was such a good time that Jacob even said when he looked at Joseph, he's like, oh, this is so good. I can just die in peace now, right? He's like, I can finally die in peace because I've seen you again. But this wasn't the fulfillment, and it wasn't quite time for him to die yet, because Joseph is going to take Jacob to go and meet Pharaoh. And they're going to get to know one another. And Pharaoh is going to ask Jacob about his life. And it's really interesting, because this is one of the few times in the Bible where we actually get to hear someone give this assessment of their own life. Like, hey, you're looking back on all the years of your life. How are you going to assess it? How are you going to evaluate it? Tell us what you think of your own life life. And it's always interesting when you ask someone like that, because it's hard to get an, a, a right, you know, a true answer out of them. So if I see anyone in here, most everyone, I would say, 90% of people, on a Sunday morning, I go up to you and I say, hey man, how are you? What's the answer going to be? Fine, good. Life is great. I kid you not, this isn't even in my notes, but this happened. My buddy who's a pastor called me Monday and he was just, we're going to get to this later too, he was just complaining. I mean, bellyaching, bellyaching, like life is miserable. He said that he had hit a point where he was just like, could not continue, terrible. Like, I mean, he's just complaining, 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 right? He's in a grocery store, sees someone that he, he knows. I hear the guy go, oh, hey, pastor, how are you? And he goes, living the dream. <laughs> After he had just spent like 10 minutes complaining to me, see someone, ask him how you live in the dream. And I just started laughing. I was like, that's what we do all the time, right? How are you? Life could be falling apart. I'm fine. Life's good. You know, you get the church answer sometimes. What's the church answer? Anybody know? Well, not hanging it. Better than I deserve. That's there. Miss Edith knew it. Better than I deserve, right? And so it's, it's funny. That's the kind of answers that you get whenever you're asking someone how they are. Have you ever noticed what people do when they give their testimony, though? because they do something kind of similar, right? It's interesting to see how they evaluate their own life and testimony, because here's what happens when you're listening to someone's testimony. They spend 99% of the time pre-salvation, right? They want to tell you just how bad they were, how miserable their life was, just how far gone they were, how bad their sin was. I mean, this just 99% of their entire testimony is this is where I was. This is how bad everything was. And then they go, but then Jesus saved me, the end. And I'm like, 
well, hold on. Like, you've been a Christian for what, 30 years now? Surely something has happened in those 30 years, right? Surely God has been doing something. You never hear anything, though, like, oh, yeah, God has continued to bless me. God's continued to be gracious to me. God has continued to be merciful to me. He's continued to grow me. It's just all the negative stuff and never really any of the good stuff. And that's because we have a tendency to focus on all the bad and kind of overlook the good, right? Wouldn't you say that's the case for most of us? We focus on the bad. We overlook the good. And so it's interesting. When someone asks you to describe your life, how you respond tells us a lot about your heart. In fact, it tells us a lot about what has impacted your heart more than anything else. Because if you ask someone, what is your life? Tell me about your life. What's your testimony? How do you assess your own life? If they give you a testimony of grief rather than a testimony of grace, I'm tempted to say that the grief has impacted them more than the grace. That's difficult, is it not? So that's the question. What stands out to you? Is it the grief or the grace? I want you to turn Genesis 47, verses 1 through 9. Spoiler alert, we're really just going to focus on verse 9 tonight. That's as far as we're going to get. But we will read 1 through 9. It says, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh blessed, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now that's interesting. Okay, we won't get to that tonight, but that is interesting. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? How old are you, right? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the day of their sojourning. Now it's interesting, you have to keep in mind here, uh, Pharaoh's question to Jacob, it was just meant to be casual conversation, right? They're, they're getting to know each other, and, and he wants to know how old he is, because I'm guessing Jacob looked pretty old at this point. And the Egyptians revered age. For them, there's actually Egyptian literature still today that tells us 110 was the idealized age. If you could make it to 110 and you were still living, then whew, you have reached the, the perfect epitome of an age, right? It's kind of like uh, what we do with the, the age 100, right? I don't know if y'all noticed this, but we base everything on 100 years as if everybody lives to 100 years. Don't know why we do that, because most people do not. But, you know, if you're 25, you go, I'm a quarter way through life. Why do you think that? You're basing it on 100 years, right? You don't know how far through life you actually are. You could be 95%. You don't know. But we tend to idolize the age 100 like they did with 110. And so Jacob says he's 130. 
That's pretty impressive, right? He's 130, but does Jacob seem pleased with his age? No. Does he feel like he's the idealized age? I've made it past 110 plus 20. No. He doesn't think that about his life at all. What does he say about his life? If if Pharaoh's like, hey, how, how old are you? Tell me about your life. What does Jacob say? Woe is me, right? That's a great answer. Woe is me. He says, you don't know about my life. It's been short and miserable. The days of my life have been few and evil, is what he says. I mean, this is just hilarious to me because we're going to get into a lot of this, but you just ask someone how their life is and they say, you know what? It's been short and miserable. That's how I would describe my life. And, I mean, honestly, it's, it's true from a certain perspective, right? Like, if you look at Jacob's life from a certain perspective, you can understand why he said something like that. I mean, just, just recall for a second that his father openly preferred his brother. Y'all remember that? Jacob and Esau, or, yeah, jo- or, yeah Jacob and Esau, and, and, and Isaac preferred uh, Esau to Jacob, and, and so his father preferred the other brother. That's tough to hear, right? And it's open, too. It wasn't a secret to anyone. So his father preferred the other brother. Then his mother led him to manipulate his father and his brother, which led to long-lasting division and hostility within the family. You remember his own brother wanted to kill him. Then he goes to a foreign land to live with extended family, and he works seven long years for the woman of his dreams. And then he was deceived by his uncle, Laban, who does not give him Rachel, the beautiful ewe lamb. He gets Leah the wild cow, right? That's who he gets. And then he works another seven years so that he can get Rachel. But then even after that, you remember the sisters didn't exactly get along, did they? They were at war with each other. There were birthing wars. There was drama. There was all this kind of stuff going on. He was mistreated by Laban, so he has to flee. And as soon as he flees, he hears that Esau is looking for him. I mean, it's just one thing after another. Then he wrestles the angel of the Lord. He has to confront Esau. Then when he finally thinks he's gotten settled in a new land, his daughter is brutally raped. You remember that? And his sons decide the best course of action is to kill everybody in the entire town and steal their goods. That's exactly what he had gone through in his life. And so from a certain perspective, yeah, his life looked like one hardship after another after another. But there is another way to look at his life, isn't there? I mean, if you think back about it, in spite of his deception, his father still blessed him, didn't he? And he received the blessing of his father, and he received the blessing of the Lord. He ultimately did get to marry the woman he loved. He got to marry Rachel. The Lord blessed him with lots of descendants. By the time he had left Laban, the Lord had made him a rich man. When he met Esau, there was not war, there was not hostility, they had peace. Even after everything, there was no fight. He received Judah back after Judah went off to live in a foreign land. He received Benjamin back safely when he thought Benjamin was as good as dead. He has even recently found out that Joseph is still alive, his favorite son. He has all the reason to rejoice. God had been blessing him, even his family. During the time of famine, God preserved his family. And you read Genesis 47, everyone in Egypt is struggling. All the citizens of Egypt are struggling to survive. The foreigners are thriving, though, because God is blessing this family. And yet, 
Jacob seems determined to define his life by his hardships and his misery. Now here's my question to you. Why do you think that is? Why do you think in spite of all that the Lord had done for him and all the blessings that God had poured out upon him and his family that Jacob could not get past the hardships? All right, let me, let me put it to you like this. This is how I'll phrase it. I stand back there at the end of every sermon on a Sunday morning. If everybody in the church came through and said, man, pastor, that was the best sermon I've ever heard from you. I mean, it was just convicting. It was faithful. I mean, if I wasn't already a Christian, I would have become a Christian today. That was just how good that sermon was. Pastor, I loved it. Then I get to the very last person. They're about to leave, and I'm like, all right. What do you have to say? We need one more that'll make it. And they say, you know what? That might be the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. In fact, I don't even know that you should be a pastor. If that's what you're going to preach like, I don't think you should be preaching. This church would be better off without you. Now, am I going to leave here going, that's just a great day? In spite of maybe 50, 60, 70 people saying, oh, that was just the best thing I've ever heard. Am I going to think about all those compliments? What's going to be the one thing on my mind until the day I die, because that's how I am, going forward? What's going to be the one thing I think about? It's going to be that one person at the end, right? Who said, that was terrible. You shouldn't even be preaching. We have a tendency to focus on all the bad and overlook all the good, even if it's way more good than there is bad, right? It could just be one person, and that's what's going to impact us the most. And it's the same way with our lives today. God blesses us in so many ways, and you would think we've got all the reason in the world to rejoice and be glad and celebrate and happy, and yet how often do we focus on all the bad stuff that's happened to us in life, all the hardships and struggles, all the ways that life has gone wrong, our hearts are often more affected by the tragedies than the triumphs. And they become more real to us, and we cling to them. And so we're asking the question tonight, what is your testimony? Someone asks you to evaluate your life. What's the first thing that comes to mind in that evaluation? That's what I want to know from you tonight. When you think about your own life, and someone just says, hey, give me your testimony, or tell me about your life so far, here's the question. Is it going to be one of grief or grace? Which one has been more real to you in your life? Which one comes to mind first and foremost? All the things you've had to endure, all the things that have hurt you, all the ways life has gone wrong, or all the ways that God has poured out his blessings upon you? How you answer this question is going to tell us what has been more impactful to your heart. The moments of grief or God's consistent grace in your life. And that doesn't mean we downplay the hardships and the tragedies and, and the difficulties in the trial. But it does mean that for the Christian, grace should resound louder than the griefs, right? I mean, I, I think about it like this. Um, I don't really cook that much. I grill a good bit, but I don't bake. I've never baked anything. But you're baking a cake, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, right? A lot of different ingredients. Uh, you've got your eggs, you've got your batter, right? Batter goes into cake. Yeah? Okay, just, just checking because I don't, I don't bake. Do I know? 
Yeah, the batter is the cake, of course. That's what I was you got your vanilla extract, right? Right? Yeah, you got that. You've got all sorts of things that go into a cake. But at the end of the day, if you're making a chocolate cake, what's it supposed to taste like? Chocolate. You're not going to be tasting the eggs, right? You're going to be tasting the chocolate. There's a lot of different things that go into it, but one thing should stand out more than everything else. How it's defined. It's a chocolate cake. It should taste like chocolate. In the same way, there are many things that go into who we are today that have led to making us who we are today, but there's one thing that should stand out more than everything else. The grace of God in Christ. If we're Christians, what should resound most about us is what we're known for, what we're called by, being redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be resounding His grace much louder than all of our griefs and all of our struggles. That should be what we are known for. Our testimony should be one of grace. We should be able to say like John Newton, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace shall lead me home. So is your testimony one of grief or grace? That's the question that I want to consider. Now, here's another aspect of this. I want you to look back at verse 9. This is really important. He says, again, Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. So there's probably another reason why Jacob's evaluation of his own life was short and evil. My question is, did you catch it there in that verse? So he has a lot to look back on and go, yeah, yeah, I've been through some hard times, right? But I think there's another reason that he is evaluating his life as being one that is short and evil. Did you catch it? You have to be astute. You have to really pay attention there. Yes, very good. Nick gets the uh, theologian of the night, okay? That's Nick tonight, not Joseph. He's comparing himself to others. Did you catch it? He says, not only has my life been miserable, but it's nothing compared to all the good stuff that happened to Abraham and Isaac, my fathers before me. You look at their lives, and of course my life is miserable. It's terrible compared to them. He says that his life's been short and evil. I mean, if you think about it in terms of years, his life was shorter. Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac lived to be 180. And so, I mean, it's probably true in some other ways, because if you look at the lives of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob did go through more difficulties than the other two did, right? <laughs> he did have to face more trials, and he did have more times of sufferings and setbacks. But it's, it's interesting to me that when he's evaluating his life and what the testimony of his life is, don't, don't miss this, his assessment is not based on what God has done for him. His assessment of his life is based on what God has done for others. What do the two have to do with one another? He's assessing his own life, and he says, here's how I'm going to assess my life. I'm going to look at what God's done for other people. And that becomes how he evaluates his own life. It's by comparing to other people. So, so here's what I would say. Comparisons will always undermine contentment. Comparisons will always undermine 
contentment. Don't you think it would have been entirely possible for Jacob to be content with where he was in life if he didn't have the knowledge that he did about Abraham and Isaac? I think he could have been pretty content saying, hey, you know what? I'm here with my entire family. We've got 70 people with us. We're in the best part of Egypt. This place is like a mini Eden. Life is good. Even my favorite son is back from the dead. But because he knows about the lives of Abraham and Isaac, he says, my life is just short and miserable. Nothing to even talk about. I think this is a huge struggle for many Christians today as well. I know it is for pastors because like I was telling you about my buddy earlier. Okay, This is what was happening with him. He feels like he's ready to possibly walk away from his church. Now, here's what's happening, okay? He wants to walk away from his church, is thinking about it, even though God is blessing his ministry in his church tremendously. Here's just a few things. The church is bigger than it has ever been in its entire history under his pastorship, okay? Not only that, the church has seen more salvations and baptisms in the past few years than they have at any other stretch in their entire history. Their choir is as big as it has ever been. You look at what is happening in his church, and everybody would go, God is blessing this place. I mean, God is really doing a work here. They're having to remodel. They're having to add classrooms. They're just flourishing. But he's ready to walk away. Why is that? Well, this is what's going on. He's uh, wanting to put resumes into other churches because his church isn't paying him as much as other people in his position with his level of education and with their church attendance are getting paid. So he looks at what they're getting paid and he says, well, I'm not getting paid as much. I'm not as happy anymore. Well, not only that, but he, he says that his church isn't as appreciative as other churches are of their pastor. Other churches appreciate their pastor much more than this church appreciates me. Therefore, I should probably look at other churches. And the church isn't quite at 300 people yet. Very close. But just can't quite get to 300 people like he thinks it should and like other churches have been able to do. So therefore, he says, I think it's time for me to start looking at another church. He's defeated and he's ready to walk away. And doesn't that sound crazy to us, right? I mean, any of us in here would look at that and we'd go, God is blessing you. God is blessing your ministry. God is pouring out his blessings upon everything that you're doing in this church. You should be content and you should be happy, but he's not. And the reason why he's not is why, church? He's comparing himself to others and how other churches treat their pastors and how they pay their pastors. He would, if he didn't have that knowledge, he'd be perfectly content. But because he does, he's comparing, and it is absolutely making contentment impossible. So his assessment of his life and ministry is not based, this is crazy to me, it's not based on what God is doing for him, it's based on what other churches are doing and what God is doing in other churches. And before we're too quick to judge, as we tend to be, how often do we do the exact same thing? How, how often are we in that same place where, where we see people who have a pretty good life, right? We look at them and go, hey, this guy's got a good life. He's got it made. But they're totally displeased with life because they're not making as much money as other people make. They're not quite as successful as other people are. They don't have the same titles before their name that other people do. They haven't found a spouse as other people 
have found. They haven't been able to have children as other people have been able to have. They don't have as many friends. They aren't as intelligent as other people. They haven't as accomplished as much as other people. They haven't traveled the world and seen as many places as other people have. And so even though they have a good life, and even though God has blessed them in so many ways that they should be thankful for, they're disheartened and discouraged, and all they can focus on is how they stack up compared to other people. They have everything they need to be content. And yet, they look at what other people have and they say, how can I be content seeing how God has blessed them? This is what happens when we make comparisons. They fuel the fire of discontentment. How quick we are to forget all the blessings that God has poured out upon us. Because it's interesting to me, remember in the previous chapter, Jacob literally said, I'm so happy I could just die in peace right now. But he didn't die, and life continued, and he had a little bit of time to think about it. He says, you know what, actually, now that I think about it, life has been short and miserable. It's been short and evil, and I have nothing to be thankful for. Same thing happens to us. We get blessed by God. You enjoy it for a time, right? And that blessing, that feeling kind of wears off a little bit. You have time to reflect, and you're like, you know what? I want more. I I want to be able to be blessed as other people are. So here's my question for us. How can we begin to have a testimony of grace and gratitude instead of one of grief and grumbling? We're all guilty of it, right? So the question is, how do we move to where we need to be? How do we move from having a testimony of one of grace and gratitude instead of grief and grumbling? Well, I think there are two important things to keep in mind. So number one, I think that the main way we do this is by remembering that we deserve nothing good from God at all. The fact that we still have breath today in spite of all we have done to God and all of our sins and all of our rebellion and how we have just defied Him at every single turn should make us thankful that we're even just alive today. The wicked who are alive today who don't know God curse God. And he allows them the breath to do it. If we remembered that we didn't deserve anything at all, that we're not entitled to anything at all, I think it'd make us a lot more thankful for the things that we do have. It's kind of like my son, my oldest son right now, Judah. Anytime he goes potty, we give him a treat. You know, we're trying to encourage him. We're trying to get him used to the potty thing. But here's the problem. If you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to want more, okay? So if you give a Judah a treat, he's going to say, give me seven. So uh, you give him one Skittle, he thinks he gets the whole bag. I'm like, you're crazy. You don't get a whole bag of Skittles. I was like, listen, there's going to be a point where we don't give you a treat anymore, okay? Because you're just expected to use the bathroom without one. I'm like, listen, Daddy doesn't get a treat for using the bathroom. That's not how it works, all right? You're just expected to use the bathroom because that's what you're supposed to do. You should be thankful that I give you anything at all. But are they thankful? No. Sinners from birth is what they are. They always want more. Give me more. I deserve a whole bag. He told me the other day, I get a whole bag of Skittles because I went pee-pee in the potty. I was like, no, you don't. I don't know where you think you're getting this statistic, but that's not how it works. But that's exactly how we are, is it not? We get blessed by God. And rather than just being thankful that he gave us anything at all, when we deserve nothing, we say, actually, I was thinking I would want more. I know that you've given me this, 
but I was thinking I actually could get more. Can you, can you bless me like you bless them? And when he doesn't do that, we grow in discontentment, do we not? But if we remembered that we deserve nothing from God at all, I think we'd be a, a, a lot more thankful for the things that we do have rather than complaining about the things that we don't have. I think that's one of the main ways that we move from a testimony of grief to grace. And, and then the second thing I would say is we need to remember that this life is not all there is. Because notice how Jacob described his life. He described it as a time of sojourning. Did you catch that word? It's a very important word there. He described his life as sojourning. Remember, a sojourner was a person who didn't have a permanent home. They didn't plant roots. They were always traveling. They were just passing through for a time. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews says about the patriarchs in Genesis. If you uh, notice, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says this, referring to the patriarchs. They, uh, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Now, my question to you is, is that how you think about the days of your life? We can be so corrupted by the world that we end up thinking that this life is all there is, right? That the, even the motto, you only live once, you might as well enjoy it now. We're tempted to think that way as Christians, right? That this life is all there is. And if this life is all there is, it's understandable when people get upset when things don't go their way. I get it. If this world and this life are all we have, if life is a one-shot game, then it makes sense to be devastated when our lives can be described as short and evil. I get it. That would make total sense. If this is it, then a testimony of grief is completely understandable. But... Church, if this life and this world are not all we have, then that forces us to reevaluate our lives, doesn't it? If our difficulties and disappointments are only a fraction of our lives, and just be honest with yourself right now, even if you've gone through some hard times, aren't those hard times only a fraction of your life? So if our, if our difficulties are only a fraction of our lives, and our lives are just a tiny blimp in light of eternity, then it makes no sense to have a testimony of grief rather than grace. Uh, my favorite pastor, John Newton, I tried to illustrate this one point, and I thought it was great. This is what he said. He said, imagine that a man just found out that he was going to inherit a great fortune. He was going to inherit a mansion on a huge piece of property and a fortune that would take lifetimes and lifetimes to spend. Great news, right? And so the man is going to claim his fortune. And on his way to claim that great inheritance, his carriage breaks down a mile from the place he needs to be to inherit the fortune. And so he has to walk that final mile on his two feet rather than go in a carriage. Newton said, imagine that he spent that entire final mile crying and complaining, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, in light of what he was about to inherit you would think that's a silly person, right? 
My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. He's about to inherit a fortune he would take lifetimes to spend. So here's my question to you. How much more should we as Christians who are to inherit the eternal blessings of Christ not let the testimony of our lives be one of grief rather than grace? In light of all that we are going to inherit because of what Christ has done for us, how much more should we be shouting grace, grace, God's grace, the wonderful grace of God? Yes, difficulties are real. Suffering is painful. Disappointments are discouraging. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we know that we are sojourners and strangers on this, on this earth. We are looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God, according to Hebrews 11. An eternal life in glory to a life of eternal bliss. That's what we have waiting for us. So, so here's what I would say, and this is something to really help us think about how we assess our lives, how we evaluate our lives. Christ has done more for us than the world has done to us. When you think back on your life, and even in light of all that you've had to go through and experience in all those hard times, can you still say this and mean it? Christ has done more for me than this world could ever do to me. So let the evaluation and testimony of our lives be one of grace and not grief. Amen? All right, Michael Stevenson, hit us with a word of wisdom.